Welcome. I'm Sherry Sylvester, a distinguished senior fellow here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and this is Ninth in Congress. Today, I'm going to talk with Ryan Gravatt, a pioneering digital strategist who led Texas conservatives into the digital age. We'll talk about what we can expect to see next in the digital communications world of public policy and politics as we edge closer to a presidential campaign year and massive issue battles in Texas from property taxes to parental empowerment. Ryan was a member of former Texas Governor Rick Perry's original campaign team, and his digital expertise and strategic vision has ensured that the delivery of Texas's conservative message has always been cutting edge. He launched his firm, Rock and Tour Media, in 2004, years before the iPhone was released, and he set the bar for website development, social media outreach, email, digital advertising, and search engine marketing from the beginning. Ryan is also an award-winning expert in developing digital strategies and analytics for audience development. I want to talk to him about what's changed in digital communications in the last 20 years, what conservatives are doing right, what we're getting wrong. Ryan, thank you for coming. Sherry, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. 20 years, take it. How, how is it different? I was there with you 20 years ago. so That's right. Well, uh, 20 years ago, it was one communication a day. If we got one social media post, uh, one email, we were doing great. Now it's multifaceted for sure. It's video, it's an appearance on a podcast, it's several emails, it's multiple social media posts, it's reacting to social media posts. It's 24-7 for sure. I mean, it's always been 24-7 because the access is always there. So how do we get that? You're like me. You came out of print journalism. That's right. Uh, where it, we were waiting till the newspaper came out, except if we were working in, in New York, and then they just kept coming out. But what was that start? When you began working for uh, the Perry campaign, they called you. What were they looking for? Was it, were we doing email? Were we at Facebook by that time? What started it off? Being, using the medium to be proactive instead of reactive using the medium to reach to the grassroots as opposed to using it to be your main push mechanism. So I would say uh, before then, candidates and campaigns were using their websites to make sure uh, the press saw their message uh, as a contrast to whatever the press was writing, um, and then to try to influence the, part, the press, and then to really reach out to high-level stakeholders. Um, and then in 2007, where you really had the push and pull of search engines uh, and you had email being, you know, a ubiquitous tool, uh, the Perry campaign really wanted to get to the grassroots and was really hard driving about let's just bypass all of the proxies like, you know, TV, radio, print journalism, and let's just get our message directly to voters and to the grassroots conservatives of Texas. And it worked. So was it a reaction to the bias? I mean, it, so that would make it unique to Texas conservatives. Mm -hmm. That would Was that the impetus? We knew that. I remember Rick Perry did not visit editorial boards. Right. He made that decision that he would not care. Right. I think it was the dynamic of the race. Uh, the press was in sort of fight promotion, Rick versus Kay, Kay Bailey Hutchison returning to Texas from the U.S. Senate. And there were all these puff polls that said that she had this giant lead 
uh, over Rick Perry. So that's kind of fast forwarding from 2007 to 2009. In the early stages of 2007, it was kind of like, you know, how do we make this machine work? Rick Perry was on the edge of technology, had a BlackBerry. His son Griffin was advocating for more technology within the campaign beyond just like spreadsheets and, and databases for talking to people. And uh, Dave Carney, his consultant, knew if you could vote count, you could get closer to predicting your victory. So fast forward to 2009, the end of the legislative session, when um, the press was really promoting Kay Bailey Hutchison, the, the interest within the campaign of bypassing the press was already there. And if they were going to go ahead and nominate her as the next Republican to run for governor, we were going to surpass that. Uh, we were going to do everything we could do to get to the grassroots. If they wanted to ride you know, the good wave of press, we were going to go directly to the grassroots. And we knew that wasn't through direct mail, newspapers, press, radio. We knew it was directly in, to communicate with the grassroots. And so you know, any campaign that can scale fast um, and frequently is the one that has the best chance of winning. And so we just put all our eggs into a paperless campaign and a paperless strategy for Rick Perry, and it started and it worked immediately. So, what was the tool? I mean, was it we didn't have really didn't have Twitter then? No. Was it Facebook? Was it email? Was it? I remember uh, you were working on this thing where people where Perry would get out to t go out to talk to people mm -hmm. and hold up his phone and tell them to text a number. Well, that was a presidential campaign. Oh right. right. Well, we'll talk about those. What, what were these tools? Because I think they've changed. Yeah, sure, they have changed. So, two thousand. 2009-2010, uh, Dave Carney came up with a home headquarters plan where we would try to recruit people who could recruit other people in their network, kind of like a neighborhood captain who could say, oh, yeah, I'll find 20 people in my precinct or in my neighborhood, and I'll sign them up, and they'll be under me, and then I'll communicate to them after you communicate to me. And then we started asking people to get other people to submit their email address and phone numbers within the platform so that we had you know, contacts for thousands and thousands of people. And the idea, what well, we didn't call it vote counting, but we had, these, we had folks take a pledge, I'm gonna vote for Rick Perry. And they would be in the home headquarters and they would be sort of tiered. There'd be people in the county who had the most contacts and they would recruit other people and ask them to bring in more contacts. So you asked me about the tools. We built a custom website, because that wasn't just off the shelf where a person could go in and enter their profile and then start entering the names and inviting other people to join them. Um, and then email. And then we use search engines. If people heard about it or if people were interested in it, we made it highly visible in search engines. And then there were databases in the background, which, you know, to that point, e-commerce was the sort of the, the mode for using a database. You would use a database for uh, putting dynamic information up on a website so that people could shop it. But for us, it was a database of collecting information that people would input and then pushing it back to the campaign so that they could use it. So we were collecting names, email addresses, pledges, and phone numbers tied to a person who would support Rick Perry. And we would separate out the channels of communication, still using traditional phones and not texting. We would hand the phone numbers off to the phone folks and we would keep the emails and we would just try to hit these goals of growth that Dave Carney would set. 
uh, we had a lot of dynamic content on our website so that we could tell if somebody had been there before and had signed up for the home headquarters, we weren't going to give them a home headquarters recruiting message. We would give them something else, like maybe donate, like maybe come to a meeting in their area. And if somebody had never joined the home headquarters, we would show them a message like, you know, become a Rick Perry supporter, pledge your vote for Rick Perry, join uh, the home headquarters movement. And then we had uh, I, we had door prizes. We had to phrase it a particular way because campaigns could not be in the business of handing out rewards for people's support and votes. So we had these door prizes, which were essentially put your name in the hat and we'll pick your name out of the hat and you might win a meeting with um, Coach Mike Leach at Texas Tech. You might win a meeting with Ben Crenshaw and a round of golf. And so we had 10 or 12 prizes like that. And then some of these uh, volunteers who, or some of these supporters who offered up prizes would do it two and three times. So a guy like Mike Leach might do a meet and greet, and then he might do a quarterback camp, and then he might do something else. So we had these incentives uh, to have people enter and recruit uh, other other supporters for Governor Perry. But at the same time that this was happening, I mean, Governor Perry really defined a new conservative message for Texas. Correct. It was, it was that's why he, he beat Hutchinson, but she, she had, did not have that message. She was... She was of Washington. She was of Washington. And being of Washington at that time, you have to recall that was kind of the uh, the cresting of the Tea Party wave that was starting to come about um, to say that Texas to say that Governor Rick Perry and his conservative values were, were doing something wrong in Texas uh, just didn't ring uh, true. No matter how many times or how, how many ways the uh, Deborah Medina was also an opponent, mm-hmm. Kay Bailey Hutchison was also opponent. No matter how many times they tried to say that um, he was pro business, he was growth. Uh, it was. Low taxes, predictable regulation, and jobs. So was was it all this recruiting one-on-one, or was there a way that you were looking for people who were also pro-business, pro-jobs, pro-conservative values, or did that come later in identifying those people? Uh, yes and yes. So a lot of the recruiting um, that we did offline was through a traditional campaign apparatus. Uh, grassroots directors going all over the state in their regions and trying to talk to political people who would talk to political people. Um, But what we wanted to do with the home headquarters is get even further deep in that network before you could get the county chairman to tell you the five people you ought to talk to. We wanted to have signed up thousands of people in that area so that we weren't relying on the traditional political communication uh, game of telephone tag. Plus, we were running in a primary. So anybody that, you know, a well-known politico in, say, East Texas was telling us to talk to, probably also telling other candidates to talk to. So the ability to sort of drive deeply into those grassroots networks uh, using digital tools was really an advantage for Governor Perry. So uh, he gets nominated. What did the, where were the Democrats? What did they do in response to this? Uh, they had Bill White uh, uh, of Houston, and you know they just simply said it was time for a change. It was TV uh, campaigns. It was just your traditional Not campaign. Not much digital. Not much digital, no. And then uh, we defined him 
uh, with microsites that were taking images of him and and spinning his messages from truth and fact and and again relying on the same sort of tactics of moving to grow the coalition or the vote count from in addition to Republican primary voters to independents and Democrats. We did some grassroots fundraising, uh, which was successful. We would ask, uh, supporters didn't quite understand why we weren't doing the traditional media. So we said, okay, we'll offer signs, but, but you have to pay for them. Um, and so in, in exchange for a donation on a Perry campaign shop, people could buy yard signs, uh, people could buy t-shirts. And that was, that was really new and that was really different than what um, most campaigns were doing in that time. They wanted to hand out the yard signs and they wanted people who had already pledged their support to say, give me my yard sign. And instead it was like, well, well you can buy a yard sign from us. So back to what the Democrats did or didn't do. Um, they were essentially... We're digitally engaged, Ryan and I are. <laughs> what the Democrats did or didn't do was... Um, they simply just ran a traditional statewide campaign. Let's raise a bunch of money. Let's spend a bunch of money on TV. Let's use what we think are the messages that are going to work well to defeat Rick Perry. And it just ended up being uh, working you know, into our strengths and that we had already communicated with grassroots uh, voters across Texas and already introduced them And if they didn't already know who Governor Perry was. And by that time, he was running for his third term. So his name ID was very solid. His negatives were known. His positives were high. Um, and there wasn't anything that, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of TV could do. So talk about a little bit pulling back just about social media in general. I'm interested in the changes in Facebook over this uh, this amount of time. Mm -hmm. I know working uh, on campaigns during that time, politicians uh, and policy people as well really liked Facebook because they could do direct communications with people yeah. and then that turned into a nightmare so can you talk about the how that how Facebook has evolved and sort of where it is today if anywhere yeah sure so uh, I'll disclose at the top that in 2020 I wrote that I think by 2024 politics will be off the Facebook platform and I think if Facebook Meta had their druthers, that would be the case. Uh -huh. um, I think there's just too much interest and fervor within the audience for them to just completely ban it entirely. And also they're doing a regulation dance that I think if they banned it entirely, both sides would say, ah, we always knew you hated us and you were just, and now, you know, now we're going to get you. So uh -huh. they've got this delicate dance. I still think they're going to find a way to segment it and move it uh, off of the purview of everyday users of Facebook. So. When we started with when we started with Perry, and then as we advanced um, through other campaigns, Facebook was something that the young people did, and they weren't, you know, traditionally interested in politics, and certainly weren't the folks that came out and voted. But then as they became young professionals, and Facebook opened up from beyond a college campus uh, tool for people to network. Um, even in 2010, when we were doing um, Perry's paperless strategy. It was, let's make sure we push something out on Facebook at least once a day. And it wasn't the kind of thing where we expected a lot of uh, pull back into the campaign. Again, the voters we were um, targeting were older. They weren't on Facebook. And they, uh, they wanted to receive communication from us in different ways. 
we opted for email and it, it seemed to be the most effective. Um, and then when Facebook started to allow pictures and graphics with your posts and they started to allow hyperlinks with your posts and then we started to dedicate resources on campaign staffs like let's listen to what people are telling us because people can message campaigns from messenger they can message from the comments they can get back and forth with each other we can glean some very interesting things from that we can speak directly to people um, so it has all of that one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, and many-to-one uh, covers all those bases of communication. Then Twitter does as well. Twitter was launched here in, I think it was 2008 or 2009 at South by Southwest, and it wasn't quite the political tool that it became in the 20, 2016 to 2020 races. Before we leave Facebook, so when did Facebook shift to it being kind of an old person's social media? Or is that an accurate description? Um, yeah, no, certainly. Um, probably around 2015, 2016. I think there was just an exodus to other other platforms that gave young folks, you know, more engagement and more kind of attention and, and frankly, a little more anonymity from their parents or the community. Like, like between 2012 and 2016, it was just everybody was getting on Facebook. And um, it almost became the, the advertising almost became like demographic buys as opposed to targeted advertising buys. And then when it, Facebook started to do the targeted advertising custom audiences and 20 partially with the 2012 presidential campaigns and then more opened up in 2014 and a lot more opened up in 2016. Um, you know, we weren't trying to just push, you know, the top three poll messages. We were trying to target messages to every conceivable constituency that would turn and support a candidate. Mm -hmm. So it became less about what are your three talking points, and it became more about looking at your poll, your polling matrix, and what do the people in this demographic care about and want to hear, and then how do you put advertising dollars behind that? So even if there are 18 to 25 year olds, and they're the smallest demographic minority on Facebook, you know, we're still leveraging the advertising program to get to them and get them to a persuadable, informed, and mobilized position of, okay, I'm gonna vote for you as my candidate. Have you, has your opinion changed in terms of the paperless campaign? And I think there has certainly been some debate over this in the last two or three cycles. Mm -hmm. So Perry comes out, no campaign signs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Abbott and Patrick followed, stopped mm -hmm. spending money on statewide campaigns for signs. Then Beto comes in. He does a lot of signs against Cruz, mm -hmm. and it was kind of something to rally around mm -hmm. the signs. And it seemed like that there was a, a mobilization around the fact people would talk about it of all ages. Well, in my neighborhood, we're about you mm -hmm. know two thirds Beto, one third Abbott, or 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 uh, if there were Abbott signs, you could tell because there were other Republican signs. Right. So. What is the thinking about how you organize digitally and the value that we're learning about in terms of seeing people just staring them in the eyes, seeing them face to face? Mm. Uh, how, how, how do you weigh that out when you're deciding 
So um, we had a lot of conversation back to Perry. We had a lot of conversations about yard signs. And I don't know if somebody said this or it was just my way of um, shortening the conversation. But the conclusion I drew that still holds today is yard signs don't get votes. They reflect votes. And when we build a digital strategy, it's a strategy to get votes. It's a strategy to pull people in through an interactive medium that you can't do on TV, on direct mail, certainly not with a yard sign. Even if you put a QR code on a yard sign, it's not interactive. It's not pushed directly to a person with a call to action and asking them to respond back to the candidate or back to the campaign. And that, to me, elevates digital over all of the messages. There are certainly cases for when you do a lot of TV because you just can't possibly reach all of the people and wait. And like, like I said earlier, the campaign that scales quickly and consistently will win. So TV will certainly do that. And you can put a telephone number and you can have a, a call to action in a script. I need your support. Uh, those kinds of things. But the interactive property of the internet so underlies and undergirds the strength of campaigns today that 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 has to be the the basis for which your strategy is built. How are we going to measure and and make sure we're bringing back votes? So with with Beto and his sense of distributing a lot of yard signs, there may have been that wow. I, a lot of supporters. Maybe I need to look his way because my neighborhood's papered over with his yard signs. Um, but it didn't have invitations to bringing people to a gathering or a meetup with him. It didn't have reasons for why he's better than Cruz. And I don't think Cruz leaned into yard signs in that campaign to counterbalance Beto. But the visuals were, wow, this guy's everywhere. I mean, granted, he came close. Mm -hmm. But he didn't win, and I wasn't on the cruise campaign, and I don't know what their digital strategy was. Um, but I bet they had a digital strategy where you're trying to measure how many people are we pulling in. And uh, I bet if Beto had some things to do over with all of the money that they got, they probably would have started earlier with a digital strategy that would have gotten down to the grassroots level and leveraged those people who were asking for yard signs beyond the simple ask of put a yard sign out and maybe and maybe donate and buy a t-shirt. Yeah. Well, it's part of why Texas, well, tell me where Texas fits in terms of the entire country in this kind of digital, um, the digital communications world. I mean, we are, you know, the center of conservative America. Mm -hmm. We're also a massive state. Yeah. You know, there you see, you hear people in other states talking about walking the distance of the state and all that kind of thing. That that just doesn't happen here. But where do we fit? You know, are we ahead? Are we behind? I'm assuming we're ahead. We're ahead in everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, we have a critical mass of conservatives, so that puts us ahead. Right. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a demographic issue where you just put out a conservative message and six out of ten uh, Texans are like right on uh -huh. but it's certainly easier to scale with digital using a conservative message to people you're introducing yourself to because there's more commonality with those values so the number alone is large 
Um, in Texas, we have the largest number of Republican grassroots donors of any state in the state. That goes to our geography. Yeah, any state in the country. That goes to our geography, simply. Uh -huh. But uh, we also, I mean, like, there are other states that try to be, you know, more conservative or have more conservatives. I'm thinking of Florida, for one, that has a large population. But we generate more grassroots conservative donations to conservative causes and Republicans across the nation than any state. And that's somebody who gives $125 per year or less to one candidate or multiple candidates. And so then you think of the large mega donors that Texas has because of our great economy and our uh, tradition of supporting conservative candidates. And we're certainly driving that engine um, across the country. And presidential candidates would do well to mine the data in Texas to try to get them, you know, the, the foundation of the strong grassroots money that can come in in five and ten dollar donations over and over to fuel their campaign even though they're thinking about Iowa and they're thinking about South Carolina or they're thinking about New Hampshire. They should mine Texas uh, because if they can run to the nomination they can count on a lot of Texan support um, after the primaries are over. Now do we win and we we just always win mm -hmm. uh, in, in Texas, and I always say when people ask me, we win because our ideas are better. Mm -hmm. We win because of the performance of the state, because people are flocking here, because our economy is good, because we stand by our values, we let business prosper, our courts are fair and balanced. What role does our digital strategy have to do with that? Because maybe not everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. And we are in this business because we don't have control of the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Every article that you see online, because we no longer pick up newspapers but and the evening news, is what a terrible place this is. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll think of a couple, I can think of a couple examples uh, and anecdotes that um, color that in a little bit with the 2022 statewide campaigns, I worked on several uh, campaigns that were targeting movers um, and first-time voters and people who had not registered to vote. And so with the candidate that was working, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick working statewide, we were targeting movers and we were targeting um, Hispanic Republicans with proven poll messages. Um, we thought these folks would respond to the conservative message, but with the movers, we knew they had uh, Republican vote history in other states, but how would they handle moving to Texas? Because you know the majority of folks are moving to the metropolitan areas. And so if they're moving into Austin with a Republican vote history, are they adopting the blues way, the blue ways? Or are they going to continue to vote Republican? And some of that content was the most well-received content uh, I've worked with um, in the last 10 years, um, you know, about schools, about jobs, about securing our border. It was all very well-received. And, you know, it wasn't like we were preaching to the choir. It was, it was very, you know, let's hope this persuades because that's what our, that's what our poll tells us to do. Mm -hmm. 
I worked with another organization that was an industry organization, and we used some advanced tactics to find people who work in um, industrial areas and work there five days a week. And did they have did they have a vote history? Did their did they have a vote history in their household? If they didn't have a vote history in their household, how could we persuade them with targeted advertising to go register? And then once they registered to vote in the general election, of course they have no primary history, uh, but the industry has an interest in saying, you know, voting is good for Texas jobs in our industry. And you have a chance on your ballot to vote for your industry. And of course it was an industry group, so we can't say what candidates to vote for because that would be partisan and we were nonpartisan. And 42% of the people that uh, registered for the first time turned out in 2022 and voted in the general election. And if they were voting their industry, they were probably voting for the conservative candidates that were protecting, or should I say, supporting the, uh, the energy industry uh, in Texas. And we're saying things that were, you know, we want to protect uh, fossil fuel production. We want to protect the jobs. We don't want to uh, do away with those things because that's countercultural to what Texas values are. And then that was just you know what what some folks in the other forty nine states might be saying. Well, in in terms of looking at uh, at the the uh, conservative message, I mean another advantage that we have is that we're positive. Mm -hmm. And I think our opponents are at a disadvantage mm -hmm. because when they come out and say, uh, like CNBC said this week, you know, Texas is the worst place to live in the country. Right. I mean, it's it's not credible. Right. It's not credible, and they're the only outlet that's saying that. Right, yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to pull, pull it together. But I'm interested, you know, over this past 20 years, you know, some of the things that we thought would happen with digital media has not happened. Um, we still, young people still don't vote. That's still a good bet. When somebody comes up and says, you know, we're going to get those young people out and that's how I'm going to win, whether that's uh, Beto or Vivek or whomever it is, I yeah. always think you don't have a strategy that's going to win because they're, they are, they are, I think, what do you think? I think they've got too much competition. You can come in with the best piece of digital whatever to slide into their Twitter feed or, or uh uh, get into their feed anywhere, and there's still going to be something that's competing that's probably more interesting. Right, that's right. Um, you know, I think it's a I think it's a mix of a couple things. One, they're not targeted nearly as heavily as older voters are. You know, relative. You know, the 18 to 25 demographic. You know, if you can get any of them at the last minute, you you know you've done well. Uh -huh. The older voters, voters 25 and older, even 35 and older, and then 45 and older, uh, have life circumstances that. Um, make them think about, about voting. Um, back to my friend Dave Carney, he used to say, we don't know why people vote, but we do know which people vote. So it's not like we could go to an 18 to 25-year-old and watch this three-minute video and this is why you should vote. But we do know the people who are predisposed and have the behavior to vote. And so we're going after them. Mm -hmm. And then we know segments within that. We know these people won't vote for us. We know these people will vote for us. Uh, these other people might vote for us. So we're gonna we're gonna show them. We're gonna show two out of three of those segments. 
And so it might be self-fulfilling in some ways that the 18, 25-year-olds don't vote, um, but the Democratic Party does an incredible job of, uh, or does a very labor-intense job of registering them and then being disappointed on election day when most of them not turn out to vote. Yeah. What about, can you tell me stories where you feel like you went down a, a wrong track or something that turned out? I remember in 2016 when Ted Cruz started texting. Mm -hmm. And people were calling me. I wasn't working for Ted Cruz, but people were just calling me and saying, this is awful. <laughs> They're texting me, how did he get my number? Mm -hmm. People are going to respond to this. This is going to be negative. Mm -hmm. This is This absolutely shouldn't happen. And uh, I mean, now I get texts from Doug Borgham. I get texts from everybody, you know, right. it's just a, but are there things that, that you've tried that just didn't work and you go, no, we're not gonna do that? Or are there things that just have to become kind of baked in? Well, sure, the Perry home headquarters that worked for his reelection, uh, for Perry's reelection as governor um, in Texas did not work in Iowa and it was a different culture, and I don't mean Southern versus Northern or Texas versus Iowa. Um, the Iowa caucus was an in-person deal. They wanted to see you. They wanted to shake your hand. They wanted to talk to you. And you were going to have to earn that by in-person visits. So we had this model that worked in Texas that was, you know, really buoyed by Rick Perry's large name ID numbers and then translating that into Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And I think we even started doing it in Florida. Uh, didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. uh, just folks weren't, weren't ready to. So that model works well for an incumbent with a high name ID, but didn't work well when we tried to replicate that mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the early presidential states. Was there a shift to phones from computer to phones? And I mean, how when you... I remember several things. Mm -hmm. uh, one is I, I remember every campaign I've ever worked on with you, you arguing that we should be spending more on digital than we were on direct mail. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when the change was made. No. Well. Um, and, and then I want to ask about phones too. But Yeah, sure. So um, for the cost of a direct mail piece, we know we can touch people five, six, and seven times. And for the cost of a direct mail piece with um, an auditing platform that we use working behind the scenes, we might serve 40 impressions, but we know 8 to 10 to 12 of them were actually consumed. Uh, and it's still the same as the cost of a direct mail piece. Um, so that's where, I mean, like we have this accountability. We have the, the ability to provide reports report almost in near real time about how this is how this is working uh -huh. um, and how the gravity of see we're you know we're able to put these impressions in front of people and measure that they're using them and then once they've consumed it let's move to the next message and so we might be able to do that in the timeline of concept to mail drop on a direct mail piece we might be able to show somebody three to four iterations of a of a video or a message sequence going from you know hi i'm candidate to you know you know these things about me now mm -hmm. you know can i ask you for your vote and i think that's just so much more dynamic and then also it's the like i mentioned earlier it's multi it's 
we're pulling people into engagement with this media as well as pushing people to engagement. To your question about phones, um, I mean, you could always reach people with phones, but when the mobile phone became more ubiquitous um, and you could do things and see things on a screen, um, that's when it really became like, okay, let's make sure we're covering all the bases there. Uh, and now, I mean, you can send a, a TV spot 15 or 30 seconds, I would recommend 15, through a text message, and you can see the, the completion rate. And it's as high as what you would expect on TV or even higher because, you know, about 96% of text messages are consumed. And so with a video, you know, you can see the consumption rate and there's no change in the channel. If they don't want to watch it then, they can watch it later. It's not a TV commercial where they like are distracted or looking for the remote and, and changing. I mean, I'm still a big believer in TV and I think 2024 will be, you know, media spots everywhere, you know, just, There'll be TV and video everywhere, and that's 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 so how. How will that work as more and more people cut cords? Oh, um, I know you wanted to keep this to thirty minutes, but that, <laughs> let me try to answer that question. So, the targeting on cord cutting has become a lot more sophisticated. I think there was this space and time where, on campaigns that we worked on. We were buying data sets on people who were cutting cords and we were watching the attrition on traditional cable increase as more people were cutting cords and the platforms hadn't caught up to, yes, we know who those people are and we'll let you target them. Um, and so all the platforms now, which is why I predict there'll just be so much more video in this uh, federal election cycle is all the platforms are just, you know, come one, come all, come target. Now, with the exception of Google, that has a lot of privacy in places for small campaigns, but there are still ways to get on their network and deliver targeted videos. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, whether it, it, we won't even be concerned, I predict, as much. Did they watch it in their house? Did they watch it on their laptop? Did they watch it on their phone? Did they watch it on Facebook? Did they see it on where did they see it? I mean, we won't be as concerned about that. We're just going to bundle all the consumption together and say, well, how many? what's the average view per voter? And how many times did we show that in a, in a three-week period? And then how much cheaper was that than just a straight-up TV buy? Uh, because we measure the points on TV versus the number of impressions or the, the quantity, the equivalent number of points that you might get going outside of traditional cable buys and going through um, court going through cord cutter OTT or CTV uh, type delivery I've got a couple more questions that I, I don't want to get off without asking you what do you think the progressives are doing wrong not in terms of we, we've agreed that they've got the wrong mm -hmm. message yeah. and there may be no way to overcome that but we see in national politics that having the right message doesn't always uh, lead to uh, to disaster. Yeah. I mean, look at our current president. So I'm wondering if what what do do they have strategies that are consistently wrong? Do they misread Texas in ways? Are they looking at the data? Do um, they not know what we think? You know, <laughs> <laughs> here's my here's my here's my take on them. Um, I think the Democrats used to be really good at building coalitions, and they got away from that, and they. 
started to do what they accused of, uh, us conservatives of was the litmus test. If you believe these three things, we'll let you in. And we never did that, and they never did that. They just did good coalition building. And then I think at some point when they lost their grip on, on Texas, the best and brightest minds in the Democrats came into Austin, and they started to absorb the Austin culture, and they started to believe that if they export what happens in Austin to East Texas, to the Panhandle, to the West Texas, South Texas, they'll be heralded as the people who are pulling people off the shackles of this so-called, you know, Texas conservative values that that people are trapped by. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, what people outside of Austin realize is those traditional Texas values bring economic opportunity. And if you start talking about, well, we need to have more regulation. Well, we need to increase lawsuits. Well, we need to um, start switching our fuel sources over and we need to have an energy transition. And well, we need to be um, more this, that, or the other. It starts to be a litmus test and it also starts to be things that aren't about jobs, that also aren't about economic opportunity for future generations. Parental empowerment. Right. And so then you become distracted by, uh, the Democrats become distracted by what, what they think and what they believe when they come together in a room in Austin, they should export to the rest of Texas. And it just doesn't take. And so I think they have a big, I think that's their, that's their Achilles heel is they, they believe their own message without really believing what the numbers would tell them. What do you think, I once I went to uh, get your thinking as we close out on what you see in 2024, and uh, we didn't talk about Twitter mm -hmm. and that Texan Elon Musk who now <laughs> owns Twitter and mm -hmm. what kind of changes you see there. But but what do you see happening here and the, the unique, you know, we've got Trump with a huge digital machine here and um, looking looking ahead, what are you thinking? Well, 2024 is going to be, um, I think it's going to, as I said before, I think it's going to be a lot of video, um, which is going to lend itself to the candidate with the most money. Uh, even though you can probably run a video budget to target a wide swath of Texas and have 50 or 60 percent of that off of broadcast or cable and still get the same kind of impressions or points or um views by folks that aren't uh, on traditional cable and, and broadcast, it's still a big expensive state to run across. And so as far as the presidential primary goes and as far as running for president goes, getting those votes um, out of Texas is going to be you know an expensive, expensive part. I don't know if Texas is going to play in the primary of deciding who's going to be president. Trump is just so formidable. Um, you think you see some challenging opportunities with Pence. You think you see some challenging opportunities with DeSantis. Um, but, you know, Trump just keeps staying at the forefront of the pre preferred candidate of Texas Republicans. And so if Texas is in play at that point, anybody that wants to try to pry it away from Trump is going to have to spend a lot of money uh, here to get their message out, and they will have already run through, you know, six or eight states before then, where they would have run and spent a lot of money. So it's going to be kind. Of, it's going to be hard to beat Trump in Texas, but a digital play would be the way to do that if there was somebody who could challenge Trump with enough 
money and resources and could scale quickly. Well, what about Twitter, though? What do you see as the future for Twitter with Elon and, and threads and, and the kind of that, that quick hit? Yeah. The sort of quick threads hit. Is a good, threads is a good uh, competitor to Twitter. Um, it's, it's curated. It's related to your Instagram account. And it might be more reflective of what your offline relationships are like. Twitter, uh, it's so easy for people to follow each other before they really know what their tone in conversation is. That like the reaction, the overreaction to news or news of the day and the trending stuff uh, makes it, you know, a bit of a noisy medium for a political campaign to really get through to, you know, the audience that matters. You know, the voting audience is still pretty small uh, in consideration to the rest of the, you know, uh, American public. But with hashtags, uh, with driving conversations, you can still do it. And it's definitely a base that you need to cover uh, as a campaign. I just think that Threads is a place where people are going to look at, well, what do my friends think? And it's a little bit easier than it is like, well, let me look on Twitter and see what my friends think. I mean, you're just endlessly scrolling through mm -hmm. things that aren't really from your your curated network of friends and family. T Threads is going to give that to you. Facebook gives that to you as well, but I think Threads is a little more little more distilled. Well, it was Marshall McLuhan that said the medium is the message. There's a lot to say about this medium. And thank you, Ryan, for joining us today on Ninth and Congress to set us uh, up to date on digital communications in Texas. Thank you all for joining us. Look for the Ninth and Congress podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive the Ninth and Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com. Thank you.